Perpetual Peace, a Philosophic Essay, by Immanuel Kant, Benjamin Trueblood Translation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by D. E. Whitcower. Appendix, Part 2 of the agreement between politics and morality according to the transcendental idea of public right. 1. Leaving out of view the matter of public right, that is, the different empirical relations of men in the state and of states towards one another, subjects with which the jurists generally deal, we have left the formal notion of publicity the possibility of which is involved in every declaration of right. For without this publicity there could be no justice, which is conceivable only as it is publicly declarable. Hence there could be no right, as only by it is right administered. Every claim of right must have this capability of publicity. Since, therefore, it can easily be determined whether publicity is possible in any particular case, that is, whether it is consistent or not with the principles of the parties acting, it furnishes an equally usable a priori criterion by which the falsity or injustice of the pretended claim, pretensio juris, can be determined through, as it were, an experiment of the pure reason. Leaving out everything empirical contained in the concept of national or international right, as, for example, the baseness of human nature which renders compulsion necessary, we have the following principle, which may be called the transcendental formula of public right. All actions having relations to the rights of other men, whose maxims do not allow publicity, are unjust. This principle is not to be considered simply as an ethical one, as belonging to the doctrine of virtue, but also as juridical and directly touching the rights of men. For a maxim which I cannot allow to be expressed without thereby at the same time thwarting my own purpose, a purpose which must be kept thoroughly secret in order to succeed and which I cannot openly avow without thereby arousing the opposition of all against the object which I have in view, such a maxim cannot awaken this necessary universal and therefore rational antagonism of all towards me for any other reason than because of the injustice with which it threatens everybody. This principle is furthermore simply negative, that is, it serves only as a means of determining what is not right towards others. It is, like an axiom, self-evident and also easy of application, as may be seen from the following examples in the field of public right. In reference to national right within the state, a question arises which many consider difficult to answer, but which the transcendental principle of publicity easily solves. Is rebellion a lawful means by which a people may throw off the oppressive power of a so-called tyrant? Non titulo sed exercio talis. The rights of the people are interfered with, and no wrong is done to him, the tyrant, by dethronement. Of this there is no doubt. Nevertheless, it is in the highest degree unjust in the people to seek their rights in this way. 
and they cannot therefore complain of injustice if they are defeated in the struggle, and afterwards, in consequence of their rebellion, have to undergo the severest punishment. In this case, much can be said, both pro and con, if the deduction be made dogmatically from the fundamental principles of right. But the a priori principle of the publicity of public right spares us all this circumlocution. According to this principle, the people would ask themselves, before entering into the social compact, whether they would be willing to have the doctrine of the right of an occasional rebellion publicly proclaimed as one of the maxims of their political procedure. It is easy to see that if, in the creation of a political constitution, the condition were made that in certain cases force might be employed against the supreme authority, it would be necessary for the people to assume to themselves a lawful power over that authority. In this event, however, that authority would not be supreme, or if both powers were made conditions of the setting up of the state, no constitution would be possible, and the purpose of the people to have one would be thwarted. The unlawfulness of rebellion is hence clear from the fact that a public declaration of adhesion to the doctrine of the right of insurrection would make the accomplishment of its purpose impossible. The principle would have to be kept entirely secret. Secrecy, however, would not be necessary on the part of the supreme state authority. He may frankly make it known that he will punish the ringleaders in every rebellion with death even though they may believe that he has, on his part, first violated the fundamental law of the land. For if he is conscious that the supreme power which he possesses is irresistible, and this must be assumed in every civil constitution, because he who does not possess power enough to protect every individual in the state against every other has no right to command him, he need have no anxiety that he will thwart his own purpose by making known the maxims which he proposes to follow. It is entirely consistent with his position here taken to hold that, if the people succeed in their rebellion, the head of the state will fall back into the position of a subject and not undertake a counter-rebellion for the purpose of securing again his former position, and also that he ought not to have to fear that he will be brought to account for his former management of the state. 2. Touching the subject of international right, we cannot conceive of such a right except under the presupposition of a state of society where right is embodied in law, that is, where those external conditions exist under which the rights of men are really secured to them. Because the very notion of a public right as such means the publication of a common will which secures to each individual what is his own. This juridic state, status juridicus, must arise from some sort of compact. This compact, however, must not be based on compulsory laws like that lying at the basis of a state. It must rather be that of a permanent free association, like the above-mentioned federation of different states. For without a juridic state of society, actively binding together different persons, either physically or morally, and not leaving them in a state of nature, there can be nothing but a simple private right. At this point also arises a conflict of politics with morality considered as a doctrine of right. 
To this conflict, the criterion of the publicity of maxims may likewise be easily applied, but only on condition that the compact binds the states simply to maintain themselves in peace with each other and against other states, and not at all for the purposes of conquest. The following cases of antagonism between politics and morality also occur, for the solution of which our principle also provides. A. If one of these states has promised another something, for example, the furnishing of aid, the cession of lands, subsidies, and the like, the question arises whether, in a case on which the welfare of the state depends, it may consider itself free from the obligation to keep its word on the ground that it regards itself a double person, first, as a sovereign answerable to nobody in the state, and second, as the chief public official who must give account to the state. The conclusion being that, under the second title, it may consider itself absolved from the obligation taken upon itself under the first. It is evident that, if a state or its head should make known that this was its maxim, every other state would naturally either avoid it or unite with others to resist its pretensions. Thus, it is clear that politics, with all its craftiness, would frustrate its own ends by the adoption of such a principle of publicity. The maxims implied in the above question must therefore be wrong. B. If a neighboring power grows to tremendous proportions, potentia tremenda, and thus awakens dread, may we assume that such a power will be oppressive simply because it can? And is the right thus given to the less powerful states to make a united attack upon it, even though they have received no injury from it? A state which should declare this to be its principle of action would thereby bring on itself the dreaded evil all the more speedily and certainly. For the greater power would anticipate the smaller ones, and, as for the matter of a union between them, that would be a slender reed of support against one who knows how to employ the principle divide et impera. This maxim of political prudence, again, if openly published, would necessarily prevent the accomplishment of its own purpose. It is, therefore, wrong. C. If a smaller state, by its geographical position, divides the territory of a larger one, which, for its own safety, requires this territory to be united, is not the greater state justified in conquering and uniting with itself the smaller one? It is clear that the greater state could not openly adopt such a principle in advance. For either the smaller states would hasten to unite beforehand for self-protection, or other powers would seek to take the prize. Consequently, the principle would, through publicity, render itself useless. It is thus proved to be unjust, and may be so in a high degree, for the smallness of the object does not prevent the injustice connected with it from being very great. 3. The question of cosmopolitical right I shall pass by without discussion.
because on account of the analogy which it bears to international right, its maxims are easily determined and estimated. Here, then, in the principle of the incompatibility of any particular maxims of international right with publicity, we have a good criterion for determining whether political methods agree with the principles of morality. But we need now to learn also what are the conditions under which the maxims of politics harmonize with the right of peoples. For the converse conclusion cannot be drawn, that whatever maxims permit of publicity are therefore necessarily right, for he who has the decisive power in his hands does not need to keep his maxims secret. The general condition of the possibility of an international right is the existence of a juridic state of society. Without this there is no public right, but all right that can be conceived of as existing apart from this, in the state of nature, is simply private right. We have seen above that a federative state of the nations, which has in view simply the removal of war, is the only juridic state between them consistent with their freedom. So the agreement of international politics with morality is possible only through a federative union, a union which is therefore necessarily required by the principles of right. Hence, the proper work of political wisdom is the creation of such a union in its widest possible scope. For without such an aim, all its wise ways are nothing but foolishness and concealed injustice. There is a bastard politics addicted to this foolishness, whose casuistry puts to defiance the cleverest school of the Jesuits. Its first principle is mental reservation. In the making of public treaties, use such expressions as may afterwards, on occasion, be interpreted to one's own advantage, as, for example, by claiming that the status quo may mean either de facto or de jure. The second principle is probabilism. Assume wisely that others have evil intentions, or that the probability of your possible superiority gives a right to overthrow other peaceful states. Its final principle is that of the philosophic sin, peccatum philosophicum. Consider it a mere trifle easily forgiven, because it is to the advantage of the world when a large state increases its power by swallowing up a small one. The pretext for these sophistries is furnished by the duplicity of politics in relation to morals when it employs one or the other branch thereof for its own ends. Both philanthropy and respect for the rights of men are duties, but the former is only conditional, the latter an imperious, unconditional duty and one must be perfectly sure that he has not transgressed it before he can give himself up to the sweet feeling of beneficence. Politics finds it easy to agree with morality in its ethical sense, where it teaches men to show respect to their superiors. But with morality as the science of right, before which it must bow the knee, politics finds it advisable not to make any compact at all, it rather denies, to write, all reality, and interprets all duties as mere matters of benevolence. 
this craftiness of a shady politics, could nevertheless be easily thwarted by philosophy through the publicity of these wrong maxims, if politics would only venture to allow the philosopher to give due publicity to his principles. With this in view, I wish to propose another transcendental and affirmative principle of public right, the formula for which runs thus. All maxims which require publicity in order not to fail of their purpose are in harmony with right and politics combined. For if they can attain their purpose only through publicity, they must be in accord with the general aim of the public, which is happiness. To be in accord with this purpose and to make the people contented with their condition is the special problem of politics. But if this object is to be attained only through publicity, that is, through the removal of all suspicion of the maxims according to which it is sought, then these maxims must also be in harmony with the right of the public. For only in this right is the union of the purposes of all possible. The further development and exposition of this principle I must defer for another occasion. But that it is a transcendental formula may be seen from the fact that it is free from all empirical conditions, that is, from the matter of the law, and has reference only to the form of universal law. If, therefore, it is a duty to try to bring about a general state of public right, if at the same time there is a well-grounded hope of realizing such a state, though only gradually and approximately, then perpetual peace, which is to follow in due time the hitherto falsely named treaties of peace, which have really been nothing more than armistices, is not a meaningless idea. It is a practical task whose solution will be gradually worked out. The goal will be gradually approached, and let us hope, because of the general progress of human society, that the day of its coming is drawing near. End Appendix Part 2 End Perpetual Peace A Philosophic Essay By Immanuel Kant Benjamin Trueblood Translation This recording is in the public domain.